I could ramble up here for many minutes saying hellos and how are yous. Uh, I will not do that uh, because I've been tasked to preach, not to babble and say hello. Uh, but it is great to be with you, my, my home church, my sending church. John told me I have, or Pastor John told me I have 30 minutes, and the last time I had a 30-minute sermon was for a 10-minute devotion. And so... Listen quick, because I'm going to talk fast, and uh, we're going to get after it, okay? I was laughing because this is one of my favorite illustrations, and I try not to reuse things, but I, I know with what, without a doubt, I preached on the Great Commission here one time and used this illustration. I am hoping that you have forgotten that sermon, <laughs> and I'm confident you have. So let me tell you this story. I am, uh, I'm not afraid or ashamed to share that I am terrified of the dark. I always was. I still am. I just have more guns now. Yeah. And I remember I was about 13 or 14 years old. Uh, we lived in Crowley, Texas, um, off 1187, kind of out in the country a little bit. At least at that time, it was the country. And <clears throat> you also have to forgive me. Uh, I've got a pretty gnarly cough. Everything's still dead in Wyoming. And so when we saw green grass, I was like, oh, how nice. And then he immediately started sneezing and coughing and um, it's, been, it's been pretty rough. So, but I was, <clears throat> I was uh, laying in bed one night. I hate the dark, I got my nightlight on. And I swear, outside my, my bedroom window, which is towards the, towards the front yard, then the street that we lived on, I heard voices. Now, if you're in counseling in any kind of this room, you know that whether you hear voices real or in your head, this is not good at 10 p.m. at night. And so I, it's, it's pitch black outside. I'm, I swear that I hear voices outside. I'm not the most thrilled. Now, the house that we lived in, uh, it was like my bedroom, my brother's bedroom, bathroom, and then our game room. Yes, I was spoiled. And then you would have, uh, to get from our rooms, you would have to go through the living room, and you had the front door and the den, or the dining area, then we had our kitchen and, and uh, where we would eat, and then there was another hallway that took you to my parents' room. Whoever designed this floor plan hated their children. And so <clears throat> we are super far away, and, and my brother's four years older than me. Again, I'm like 14 years old at this point, and I call my brother, because I wanted to get to my mom and dad's room because I was scared. And I call my brother, Josh, somebody's outside my window. Can you take me to mom's room? I'm really expecting to get made fun of. And he says, meet me in the hallway. I'm like, yes. So I step out into the hallway. My brother's four years older and he is jacked. I mean, my brother's way, he's more athletic than me. He's better looking than me. It's, it's, it's been a hard life. And so... <clears throat> my brother opens the door. And as he opens the door, if you didn't know that my brother and I played baseball our whole lives, that was, that was what the Martins did, we played baseball. And so my brother comes out and he's got a wooden Louisville Slugger baseball bat in his hands and my brother has forearms that would make Popeye blush. And he comes out and I can just see veins coming up his arms and he's holding the bat and I was like, ha, I hope Whoever is outside comes inside because I would like to see the battle go down. But the moment he walked out, I knew I was going to make it to my parents' room. Yeah. 
right? <laughs> it made me laugh because I didn't know what my brother was going to do, but I knew that once he stepped out with a bat in his hand, I knew that that instrument of deliverance would be with us the whole way and I would make it safely to my destination. Uh, I, I've shared this story before and everyone wants to know how the story ends. The story ends, I'm a 14 year old afraid of the dark, it was nothing. Uh, but that doesn't make the story sound very good. In our passage today in Exodus 17, we're going to see that through God's divine instrument, God delivers his people. So we're gonna see in Exodus 17 that God is our deliverer and God delivers us through his divine instrument that he chooses. So turn with me in your Bibles and we will be in Exodus 17, eight through 16. I wanna catch you up to speed with where we are in the timeline up to this point. If you know the Bible well and you're familiar, then, <coughs> woo, child. Somebody better start praying that I can make it through because I'd be most sad if I can't preach this. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, you will understand this. This is after the Exodus um, and before the, or around the wilderness wanderings. And so, uh, this is a time where the nation of Israel had been enslaved for 400 years to Egypt, and they have just now gotten out of slavery, and they are they're moving in what's called the exodus out of Egypt, and they have become their own entity. This is the first time that Israel has become its own independent nation, and that's what's taking place. Uh, we are just after the exodus, uh, and they've been going through the wilderness for just a moment at this time where this passage picks up. And I'm going to read. It says, At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel provided, but whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. And so Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, as we're looking at verses 8 and 9, the first thing that we see in this text is that the people of God trust in God for deliverance. As we start this, I immediately want to ask two questions. What in the heck is Rephidim and what is Amalek? Those are the questions that I have when I come to this. Uh, Rephidim is a location, it's a place, but Amalek is a people. And so at this place, a people came out and fought against Israel. So who is Amalek? 
Well, they're known as the Amalekites, and Amalek is the first attacker of the people of God post-Exodus. And so uh, God delivers his people from 400 years of slavery. They are now inaugurated as the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And the first people they encounter are the Amalekites, and the Amalekites try and kill them. I don't know about you, but that is the beginning of a rivalry. Being in Texas, of course, I I went to Crowley High School. We didn't like North Crowley or Burleson. Um, If you are a Texas Rangers fan, I'm confident that you hate the cheating Astros. And if you're an Astros fan, you're finding a way to justify cheating to win. I also grew up in, uh, in, in this area, and we had the, uh, the Red River Shootout, Oklahoma versus UT, Boomer Sooner, baby. <clears throat> and so what we see taking place in, in right out of the gate is a rivalry. These people have attacked the nation of God. The Amalekites are some bad apples. If you go a little bit further, King Saul. King Saul is supposed to be defeating the Amalekites. And, he, and he's supposed to devote them to destruction. If you know much about this, this king, he was a, a royal letdown. And so instead of devoting this entire this city to destruction because it was God's discipline for their sin, he saved King Agag. He doesn't kill King Agag. Well, King Agag escapes for a certain amount of time and and my belief is that in that amount of time, he, he passed on his offspring because quickly King Agag does get caught and killed. But if you fast forward another few hundred years and you go to the book of Esther during the reign of King Xerxes in Persia, you have Esther, the queen, and there was a man who was the second most powerful man in all of the kingdom of Persia. His name was Haman. And Haman devised a plan with all of his political power to kill every single Jew. Now, in our church, we walked through the book of Esther and we learned that an attack on God's people is an attack upon Christ. Because Christ comes from the people of God, to attack God's people pre-Christ is to try and stop salvation from ever happening. It was demonic and it was satanically empowered that Haman was trying to eradicate all the Jews and it looked like he was actually going to pull it off. Of course, we know that in that story God provides, but what's interesting about Haman, Haman's name is related to his family line. It's Haman the Agagite, descendant of King Agag, spared by King Saul, a descendant, or Agag, King Agag, a descendant of the Amalekites, God's people's first enemy. So the Amalekites are a bad group of people that hate God and they hate God's people. And they chose to be their first enemies. Now, This typically, uh, if one nation was wanting to fight another nation, no big deal, right? Except that they just spent 400 years being brutally worked as slaves with very little food and nutrition and lots of work. This wasn't exactly the special forces operations of of the people of God. They were like pitchforks possibly, okay? This was a ragtag band of people And so they don't have much skill to trust in. So we realize that through this, they trust in God 
to deliver them. How is that? Because Moses says to Joshua, Joshua, tomorrow, get some people with you and go fight them. Tomorrow, I'm going to go up on top of the hill with God's staff in my hands. Now, I'm not former military, but it doesn't take a combat veteran to know that's not a very good marching order, okay? You got Grandpa Moses, he's like, hey, Joshua, I'm going to go up on that hill tomorrow with my cane. Go ahead and round up some boys and let's get after it. Like, this doesn't seem to me, if I'm Joshua, no offense, I'm not trusting Grandpa Moses at this time, okay? He's old, I'm the new leader, I'm gonna come up with a better plan for how to not get us killed on our first ever battle, except Grandpa up on top of the hill. And so, but he doesn't say, it's, it's not just a cane, he says, I'm gonna go up there with God's staff. And if you, can, if you didn't know this, if you go back to Moses' call to ministry, God says, Moses, I've selected you to deliver my people from slavery. And he says, no, 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 God, I've got a stuttering problem. I don't really think that I should be the one doing this ministry. <clears throat> and he says, listen, I'm, I'm gonna help you walk him through that. But one of the ways that he proves that God is going to be with him is he says, hey, what's that in your hand? And he says, it's a staff. And he says, throw it down. Moses throws this wooden staff down and it becomes a snake. And this is how you know Moses was born a southerner because he runs away from the snake. <clears throat> and then God says, now go pick it back up. And this is the beginning of, of Moses' Pentecostal ministry because then he picks up the snake and plays with it. And if you're Pentecostal, you got that. <laughs> and so he, he has this staff that, that turns into a snake, then it turns back into the staff. And Moses is like, holy smokes, this is not a normal staff. And God's like, yeah, this staff is to prove to the people of God that I'm with you. Now, um, in one of the 10 plagues, what I'd like for you to do is uh, because they thought that Pharaoh was the king of, the, of, of water, I believe, that he, he had some sort of godlike power over the waters. He held out his staff over the Nile River and turned everything in Egypt into blood. And then whenever they're set free from Egypt and they're going to the Red Sea and the Egyptians change their mind and come and try and kill them, he holds his staff out over the Red Sea and the Red Sea parts. And then once they get past the Red Sea and they're wandering in the wilderness and there's no water for this Almost one million people, by the way, that's about how many people were in this nation. And all of their livestock, there's no water. He strikes a rock and water comes out so that they could all uh, have their thirst quenched for a million people and all of their livestock. This staff is the representation of God's divine deliverance. And so when Moses says, Joshua, you guys go fight. I will go up on top of the hill where I can watch the battle and I will have God's staff in my hand. Joshua then realizes that if God will be with them, they will be delivered. And so we realize that God's people, the people of God, trust in God for their deliverance. And then we're gonna move on into verse 10. And we're gonna look at the next thing. It says, Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur <coughs> went up to the top of the hill. And while Moses held up his hand or hands, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. And so what we see is just a continuation there 
is that God's deliverance comes through God's divine instrument. I love how the the wording is phrased at the end. It says, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. But if you're just reading up above that, you realize it's not Joshua's swords and Joshua's skills that won them the battle. It It was God's staff that was being held over them during the battle. And so God's deliverance comes through God's divine instrument. You gotta think, this would have been pretty wild. (laughs) That Moses is up there and he's like, all right, well, I held it out over the Nile. Hell, I hit the rock with it. Um, I just blended a few words and it sounded like I cussed. I don't know if you heard that. I'm gonna keep that, I'm gonna redo my notes and include that because it sounded good. I try to say he and like help, and it, it, it came out as an eternal resting place for those who don't know Jesus. And so, my bad, my bad. Golly, amen. So, he's like, I held it out over the Nile. I struck a rock with it. I think what I'm gonna do is just lift it up. And he's like, my arm's getting tired. That arm's getting tired. Dang, I'm tired. Help. And Moses or Aaron and her are like, we got you, brother, we got you. Here's, here's a rock, sit down. And then it says they held his hands, one on one side and one on the other. You could imagine being Joshua and you're when you're like, dang, we're doing great. You look up at Moses and his hands up, you're like, awesome. And then you start getting your butt whooped and you look up at Moses and, whoo, and you're like, put it back up, man. And so you're like, I gotcha. And so eventually, once they saw the stone was set up, the assistants were there, and the staff was going to be up no matter what Moses' hands felt like, they were like, all right, we're going to win. We got this. It's pretty amazing, uh, pretty cool story to think about. And if you'll permit me, I, I want to, to jump out of this text for just a moment, and I just want to thank you uh, for holding our hands in Wyoming. I just want to share briefly that we planted that church with 14 people in 2019. And by God's grace now, about 100 people every single week come to exalt or explore Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you thought that was cool, we're gonna clap a lot. Uh, We just celebrated our 50th baptism. We have two more planned for whenever I get back. And uh, so that'll put us at 52 baptisms in four and a half years. That's almost a baptism a month for four and a half years. God is good. But one of my favorite things that we've, we've seen is that there's been two men. One guy is a former biker. He used to beat people up for not a living. He didn't get paid for it, but he loved it. That was his job was to protect this certain gang and fight people. He's one of our pastors tattooed up everywhere. Now he's got a whole bunch of tattoos about Jesus all over him. He's one of our pastors of our church. God saved him uh, right before we started the church and, and we began discipling him. We saw God call him to ministry and he's a phenomenal shepherd. We had a guy that whenever we planted our church, he was getting, so our, our church is in a restaurant and it has a bar in it. We meet in one side and there's the, the restaurant and bar in the other. When our church began, he was getting drunk at the bar with his best friend. He was known in town for that guy. Now he serves as one of our deacons and he's actually preaching his second sermon ever uh, next Sunday because God got a hold of his life and then he began praying for his best friend and now him and his best best friend both are serving the Lord at Outfitter Church. Lives are being changed. 
We have another gal in our church. Her name is Tracy. She, she's leading our children's ministry. Tracy came to us and she was worshiping rocks at the time. She was trying to find hope and joy and peace through, through the energy given through rocks and crystals. But now we've told her about the rock, the most high. And she now worships him and she serves him faithfully. I'm so excited to share with you that we have, we, we've been having a burden to plant new churches. There's over 60 communities in our state that don't have a church of any kind. And we've been burdened to try and start new churches in those places and I'm celebrating with you that we have two churches that are supposed to be started out of our church this year and another one next year. We already have the building in the town an hour away from us. We just got to get the workers ready to go for it. And so Matthew 9, 38, pray that we could raise up more laborers from within our church because we have work to do. But let me tell you, as much fun as it is to summarize four and a half years of ministry in four minutes right there, it's so much harder than I could have ever thought. I thought that church planning was gonna be uh, this really sexy dream, and, and it is, it is in many ways, it's awesome. But holy smokes, I've never been more challenged, I've never been more discouraged, I've never faced more adversity, I've never dealt with such spiritual warfare. It is absolutely exhausting. Anything that God calls you to do ought to make you exhausted. But I wanna thank you, Hallmark Church, because there was, we've been holding up Christ and proclaiming him in Wyoming for four and a half years. We wouldn't have been able to do that had through your prayers, through your giving, and through your love for us. What you've done is you've come and put a stone underneath us and you've allowed us to sit down at times and you've come alongside and you've held up our hands and saying, listen, I know you're tired, but we're gonna help you. We can't hold this staff for you, but we can hold your hands and strengthen you to do the task. And so Hallmark, I want to thank you so much for your love and for your support for us. And I know that on behalf of all the other missionary families that are here this week, they would say the exact same thing. Whether it's uh, water wells in Honduras or in Kenya with David and Kim or Mitch and Beth, we are so grateful and we cannot do our ministries. And I'm not making that up. It's in the text. Moses would not have held it up if it wasn't for support. We would not be where we are if it wasn't for you supporting us. Thank you so much. And so as we come back into the text, what we've seen so far is that the people of God trust in God for deliverance and that God's deliverance come th comes through God's divine instrument, which in this passage is a staff. And the last thing that we're gonna see is that God promises his people continued deliverance. Look at verse 14. So they win the battle, <coughs> and then, Moses, or then the Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it what you'll see in your passage, it says, the Lord is my banner, or Yahweh Nissi. It says, he in, it says, he said, indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so this is just a short tangent in the sermon. <clears throat> when they win this battle, he says, the Lord commands Moses, write this down and recite it. Listen, they didn't have like Apple notes back then, okay? 
You couldn't just get on to Microsoft Word and, and like write down some notes. This would have taken a significant amount of time for them to write down what had happened and recite it. <coughs> Excuse me. It wasn't just to be written down for his own benefit. It was to be written down so that it could be remembered and recited to generations to come. And let me just encourage you, church, when God does something powerful in your life, write it down. I, I was told to do that when we planted our church, and I didn't because I'm arrogant, don't listen to people sometimes. And now people have come back and told me stories of life change that I have completely forgotten at Outfitter Church. Listen, when you write down and recite these great deliverances that God gives you, it's a bullet in the gun against the enemy. And what I can tell you is that the Christian life is the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm sure that you can relate. And it's not that Christ makes it hard, it's that your sinful self makes it hard. It's that when you're supposed to be kind, you wanna be spiteful. When you're supposed to be generous, you wanna be stingy. And when you're supposed to be loving, you wanna be hateful and hold grudges. And so being a Christian is really stinking hard because we are really stinking broken. And we desperately need Jesus. And so listen, when you overcome something and you start realizing that where you used to have bitterness, now you have peace. Where you used to have pride, now you have a, a servant-hearted attitude. Write that stuff down because you didn't do it yourself. God delivered you. Write it down and recite it to others as you get to tell them about your life. Because you need as many bullets in your gun against the enemy because this battle will rage. You will want to quit. You will want to turn your back on God. But if you have these bullets, if you can fight back with truth and with the remembrance of God's deliverance in your life, then you will continue on in this race. God promises his people continued deliverance. And so what Moses does, he writes down and he recites it but then he also creates an altar and where he puts up and he says, the Lord is my banner. And again, I like to ask questions of the text. I mean, did he, did he go on vistaprint.com and order himself a banner that says the Lord is my banner? Well, what, what was a banner? Uh, what, what is that in, in ancient Israel? What does that mean? The best story, and I'm not endorsing this movie from the pulpit, I'm just saying it's a great illustration, is Mel Gibson's The Patriot. If you remember that movie, there's a scene where they're getting their tails beaten and, and he sees the flag, the flag bearer retreating. If you re remember, if you don't know this, you're probably too young and you probably shouldn't watch this movie, but let me just tell it to you. <coughs> he sees the flag bearer running back and he runs and he grabs the flag. Now he's got mud and all kinds of dirt and gunpowder all over his face. This is Mel Gibson, man. This is epic right now. And you are in the edge of your seat. And he grabs the flag and he looks around and he says, hold the line. And then he just starts running. And all of these super scared soldiers who are running and retreating, they see the colors moving forward and they're like, yeah, let's go. And so they all start running. And like, if you don't want to punch a hole through a wall in that moment of your life, you're not American. And it's like, this is awesome. And he's just streaming and he's running and somehow he's not getting shot, but he just keeps running and he's running. He has no weapon, no help, no defense but he makes it, it's, it's a movie, right? But in that right there, that's the best way I can explain to you about what Moses is trying to say. 
Moses is saying that God is the one he rallies to. And if God doesn't retreat, then he won't retreat. If God says rally here and get after it, he's gonna rally there and get after it. If he says go to this neighborhood and be a light in a dark place, we're gonna go to that neighborhood and be a light in a dark place. That's what Moses is saying. He says, because you have defeated my enemy, because you've delivered us, I'm going to make an altar and I'm going to name that altar, you are the one I follow. You are the one that I rally to. You are my Lord. That's what's happening in this passage. And the reason he writes that is because God says to him, I will deliver you from them for generation to generation. This wasn't a one-time only deliverance, but it was a promise that it would be forever. And so if you've noticed, I haven't done any application yet. Now, as we come to the end of this, of this passage, let me try and make some application here. Who is Amalek? We've already discussed who they are as a people, but what do they represent? In this passage, Amalek represents sin and rebellion to God. God had plans for his people to become their own nation. Amalek tried to get in the way of that. God has plans for your life. Your desire to do things yourself get in the way of God's plans for you. And so Amalek represents sin and rebellion to God. The staff, the staff represents uh, that God's divine instrument, but that was limited that staff was alleged to be put into the Ark of the Covenant and to be carried around with the nation of Israel. But that staff was only in one place. What we have now is far better. We have a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who came, was born of a virgin, and lived a perfect life. He lived and he taught, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Follow me. Right, and I will give you rest for your souls. And he says, in three, I'm gonna die, and in three days I'm gonna rise, raise back up. And so Jesus willingly is suffered and brutally killed on the cross, and he's dead. And, and, and that's whenever we're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? This is, there's supposed to be a sequel of this story. And three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, and he appears to over 500 people. Listen, if you're a skeptic and a doubter, that's okay. There's room for you in this room right now. But what I want to say to you is the historical validity of the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most trustworthy things you can believe. That culture would not have allowed a lie to be perpetuated. There was over 500 people that could have disproven the resurrection. And so Pastor Tim Keller says that two things must be true. The grave was empty and Jesus was alive or it wasn't. Because they would have easily been able to prove they were lying. But because that lie didn't, or because it didn't get disproven, we can confidently assert that they knew, that that context knew, historically the grave is empty and we did see this Jesus alive. Whether or not you believe in the resurrection, that's up to you. But I want you to know that as a skeptic and a doubter, look at the historical reality of the resurrection. Lies don't change worlds. And what we have is we have a religion that was begun or a Christianity was begun in one tiny continent and it is now the largest faith across all the world because a couple of poor men believed in a powerful resurrected savior. And so we don't have a staff, but we have a risen savior. 
That deliverance was temporary at Rephidim against Amalek. But because of the sin in our lives, that sin separates us from God eternally. And so the deliverance that we need now is bigger than the staff. We need a savior to deliver us internally from our own sin, but also connect us back to God. And so as we apply this, church, I want to encourage you, what is your Amalek? What is it in your life that continues to try and interrupt God's plans for what, you, what God's called you to do? What is it in your life? Is it greed? Is it fear? Is it depression? Is it lust? What, whatever it is that is consistently getting in your way of what God has planned for your life, Christian, what I want you to do is I want you to look to the hill. I want you to look up to the hill because get this, <coughs> there was, Moses isn't the only one who's ever gone up to a hill and, and brought deliverance for a people. We believe that Christ Jesus went up onto the hill that was called Golgotha and he may not have had a staff in his hands but his hands were nailed to the tree. And on that tree, anyone could look up to that hill and see that Christ was suffering and that his hands were out on the cross and that he died and then he rose again from the dead. And so church, in your fight against sin, maybe you're feeling defeated, let me remember mind you, look up to your victorious Savior. You will see an empty cross and an empty tomb, and you will know that his hands are held high over you, proclaiming victory and defeat to your sin and victory for you in him. And so it doesn't matter how hard your marriage has gotten. It doesn't matter how tight the finances are. It doesn't matter how much bitterness you have. It doesn't matter that forgiveness seems far away, but look to Christ. I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm saying it's doable. Look to Christ and in the midst of the worst battle of your life, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the brokenness, God will put the pieces together. God will redeem you and God will continue to deliver you. We, we see this all the time in our church. So many people have come to Christ after a broken marriage. Guess what? God's bigger than your divorce. God's bigger than any broken thing that you find yourself in. God is bigger. Don't look to the fight. Look to the hill and know that the fight is promised that you will have victory over it. I'm gonna ask our band to come forward as we begin to close. In January, I got to go to uh, San Antonio to speak at a church and was kind of getting excited about going to see the Alamo. I really wanna get into history, but I don't like reading. And so that's kind of ruined that for me. <laughs> but I was studying, studying some stuff about the Alamo. Meaning I Googled cool quotes from the Alamo. And I found William Barrett Travis's letter. <clears throat> I want to read this to you. Again, the, the Alamo is being surrounded by thousands of soldiers with Santa Ana. They're unprepared, they don't have enough people. So he writes to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens, citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I've sustained continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. 
The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion, otherwise the garrison are to be put to the sword. If the fort is taken, I have answered the demand with cannon shot. Our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty of patriotism and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid. Tell you, that's pretty American. That's pretty baller. Unfortunately, we know how that story ends. They died. But the sentiment of that is essential to the Christian life. The enemy has said to surrender or else you'll die. But I have responded with cannon fire. I shall never surrender. I shall never retreat. In the Christian life, you have to make a decision that you'll never surrender. You'll never retreat. Maybe some of you right now have felt like you're in a moment of surrender in your life. You've given up. Get back in the fight. In this passage, there's three parties. There's God's people, there's God, and then there's God's enemies. By process of elimination, we can rule out that we're not God. So that leaves two people, God's people and God's enemies. God's people are those who look to God for their strength. Those who have repented of their sins, they heard the message of Jesus and they've repented, they've turned away from living life their way and live life according to God's ways. The other one is God's enemies and those who are actively against God. Now you may say, listen, I don't hate God. I love the way that John Mark Comer says this. He says a Christian is someone who has reoriented and reprioritized their life with Jesus as the ultimate authority. And so I would ask you today, if you have not completely changed your life and reoriented it around Jesus, and then you're following him and becoming more like him regularly, daily, weekly, monthly, then I would beg you to know that you are not a Christian. Christians act like Christ. And so if you're not a Christian, then you are an enemy of God. And defeat is impending. The Bible calls this a literal place called hell where you will live in a self-centered, eternal torment because you rejected God's invitation to know him and to enjoy him in this life. Therefore, he will, he will accept your rejection of him for eternity. But the cool thing about our commander-in-chief is that if you raise that white flag and say, I surrender, you can switch teams. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, what I would present to you this morning is an opportunity to surrender. Perhaps while I've been preaching, you, you, you said, the Spirit's revealed to you, I, I need, I need to surrender. I want deliverance. So what I'd ask you to do is in this moment, this prayer doesn't save you, but you have to truly be ready to surrender and follow Jesus. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you and you're ready for that this morning, I'm gonna ask you to pray 
in your seat. Pray with me. God, I surrender. I realize that I'm working against your plans. I need you to forgive me. I can't save myself. I believe Jesus can though. So today I surrender my life to Christ. With you as my ultimate priority. Forgive my sins and help me follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that, would you please come let someone know this morning there's a card nearby you or you can fill out that QR code. Please share that with somebody because we want to help you in this fight. Now let me pray for our church.